Good evening. Good evening and welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and on behalf of the students, faculty, and staff of the school, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event. Uh, to those of us who are uh, watching remotely, I'd like to welcome you as well via live stream. Uh, this year, under the guidance of two faculty members, Marilee Kotsia and Julian Hayter, uh, the Leadership Forum has been examining failures in leadership and what we can learn from them. We've invited scholars and experts to reflect on what went wrong with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and our response to COVID-19, and what continues to go wrong with uh, our response to climate change, historical memory and racism, and the subject of this evening's presentation, free speech in higher education. We're focusing our attention, it's important to note, on times when we could and should do better. Now, as is our custom, uh, we've invited a leadership studies student to interview and then introduce tonight's speaker, Alice Drager. Katrina Durante is a senior from Washington, New Jersey. She's double majoring in leadership studies and psychology, and she's a science leadership scholar at the Jepson School. In fact, she currently serves as co-organizer of the Science Leadership Scholars Program. She's also co-director for KESM, a national nonprofit that provides uh, support to children with a parent battling cancer. And she's vice president for ODK, the National Leadership Society, Honor Society. She's also, she's very busy, she's also an active member of the West Hampton College Honor Council and, the, and is a member of the a cappella group, Cœur du Bois. After graduation, she hopes to pursue a PhD in media psychology, conducting research on social media dynamics. Please join me in welcoming Katrina to the stage. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Dean Peart. And now it is my honor to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Alice Dreger. Dr. Alice Dreger is a historian, bioethicist, and critically acclaimed author. After receiving her PhD in the history and philosophy of science from Indiana University Bloomington, she went on to research individuals born with atypical non-binary sex characteristics and individuals born as conjoined twins. Her research led her to challenge the medical profession's definition of normal and its use of so-called corrective surgery on such individuals. Dr. Dreger has spoken about her research on hundreds of media programs, including Oprah, Good Morning America, and NPR. She has also been a featured expert in documentaries that aired on A&E, ABC, Discovery, PBS, and HBO. Her TEDx lecture, Is Anatomy Destiny, has been viewed over a million times. She has published articles in scholarly journals as well as in the mainstream press, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Wired, Slate, The Atlantic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and The Chicago Tribune. She has written four books and edited five. In Galileo's Middle Finger, a New York Times editor's choice book, Dr. Dreger covers controversies in academic medicine, especially those involving human sexuality. No stranger to controversy herself, she has come under fire for her ideas, including some of the ideas expressed in Galileo's Middle Finger. She cited censorship issues when resigning from her position as professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University in 2015. 
Dr. Dreger argues that the pursuit of evidence is the most important imperative of our time. She says scientists must put the truth first and the quest for social justice second and adhere to an intellectual agenda that isn't first and only political. In addition to her scholarly pursuits, Dr. Dreger founded and is the publisher of East Lansing Info, a nonprofit local journalism web outlet covering the city of East Lansing, Michigan, where she resides part of the year. For the last eight years, she has also been writing an academic murder mystery novel series under the pen name Molly McAllen. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Dreger to the stage. Thank you all for being here tonight. It's really wonderful to be getting back, I won't say post-COVID, but with COVID, <laughs> as the case may be. It's been a great visit here at University of Richmond, and I really appreciate you all having me. The visits with the students and the faculty have been wonderful. I got to go running this morning in beautiful Virginia weather. And I wanted to especially thank Shannon Best for arranging my visit, because she did it in such a masterful way. I had to laugh when I learned that this was the topic about finding our way on the heels of failure, because while COVID was happening, every, I normally work from home, and my whole family moved back in to work from home, and they were driving me crazy. So I went running a lot, and the consequence of that is my feet got bigger, and I discovered at the last minute that when I went to put on my good shoes to go give talks, my shoes no longer fit. So <clears throat> all of my heels failed, and I am now finding my way in new shoes, and will hopefully not trip as I uh, talk with you this evening. Um, I'm going to speak this evening on the, by request on the topic of free speech and uh, open inquiry in higher education. And I thought about subtitling this Tragedies and Comedies, because the, I could have chosen from about 100 different stories that I've come to know sort of personally. I've not researched them all, but there are so many different stories of problems that people have encountered with regard to free speech and open inquiry in higher education. But I thought I would start with a comedy. I've been canceled something like five times. For people who think that cancellation culture is not real, I tell them to watch my biography. <laughs> because I've been canceled so many times. But this is the one I didn't expect. It was an article I wrote for the Chronicler of Higher Education by request called The Delicate Art of Dealing with Your Archivist. And what happened was they were doing a special issue on helping graduate students understand what it would be like to go into the archives. So they know I do comedy writing part of the time. And they called me and said, could you do a piece that sort of stereotypes the different archivists? So I did this, the heiress, the snob, the mensch, and I thought the piece was really funny. The editors thought the piece was really funny. They did a funny drawing for it. They released it. And then a bunch of archivists came for me <laughs> because they decided that I was rudely stereotyping archivists and I should not stereotype anybody. So they started attacking me intensely on Twitter. And I thought, oh my god, the librarians are coming for me. And when the librarians are coming for you over a case of free speech, you know you've really reached the end. Um, <laughs> So I, I, it was actually rather disturbing. I mean, I joke about it now, but it was a disturbing uh, case. But I, I've read it since, and I actually still think it's a really funny piece. So I wanted to note that the theme for today is, uh, this series actually, is about focusing on past and present failures in leadership and followership. And I love that. And I've decided after visiting here today, I want to found a center for followership. <laughs> Because I think this is such an intelligent way to think about this, that what we need to think about with regard to free speech and open inquiry on American campuses today is not just how we lead, but how we follow. And I mean that literally in part on Twitter and Facebook and other places that we follow. How do we behave in terms of um, the way we're dealing with stuff? So I wanted to begin by thinking, are we undergoing a climate change in academe? 
And I do believe we are. When I think back 30 years ago to when I was an undergraduate, there have been radical shifts in terms of how universities operate. For the first, there are no more ivory towers. When I went to college, calling home was incredibly expensive. We did all sorts of tricks to, so that I wouldn't have to call home because it cost more than if my parents called me. So I would do this thing we all did then where you'd call collect and they'd reject it and they'd call you back. You really were in many ways in a bubble when you went to college 30 years ago because you went onto a campus and you left your family behind and you were in that ivory tower with those faculty members. The faculty members were also in many ways in something more like an ivory tower because they were less subject to constant pressures from the outside. That has really changed. It's really changed where our students and our faculty as well and our staff and administrators are constantly connected to the outside world in ways where the pressures are constantly on us. And so it's a really different environment than it was 30 years ago. Additionally, scholarship is now frequently judged by virtue of revenue and public relations. And this is something that's really changed in the last 30 years. I come out of a PhD in history of science. When I began my career, we were judged very much by the quality of our scholarship. Today, we're judged very much by how big our grants are and whether or not various places are picking up our research and putting it on television. That is a very different world than we had 30 years ago. I would argue that facts don't seem to matter as much in university cultures in some ways, and I'm going to get into some of that. That we have ratings, including US News and World Report, really shaping the way that universities and colleges are run, and also risk managers running universities in many ways. So a lot of what we might want to do that might be daring is pulled back by the fear of having a bad ranking or a bad risk management strategy. And then the issue of the huge funding and the corporatization of academia has really, I think, changed the way academic culture exists today. And um, actually, if, if you end up buying a copy of Galileo's Middle Finger, the one they're selling, which I appreciate, is the paperback edition, which actually explains why I resigned from Northwestern and tells the story of the fact that my dean censored some work that I published over a branding concern at the university. So that kind of corporatization has really changed university culture over the years. So let me just tell you a little bit about my background before I get into the research that I did on this topic and then talk about uh, where I think these pressures are coming from and what kinds of things we can do to try to improve the situation. Uh, as my introducer explained, Katrina, I began my work looking at the people who were labeled hermaphrodites in the late 19th and early 20th century. That was my dissertation work and Harvard University Press published it as my first book. I was interested in that because I was interested in the question of how scientists and doctors in the 19th century, who were politically very conservative, how did they view people whose bodies challenged social norms of there being only two sexes? I won't go deep into it, but about one in 2,500 children who is born today, it's difficult to tell what sex they are. They may look male on the outside, but have female components on the outside, or vice versa, or they may have sex anatomy that blends male and female types. It's not something when I was growing up that I heard about, but when I found out about it in graduate school, I became deeply fascinated by it. And so I published this first book. And after I did that, people who had been born with the conditions I was writing about from 100 years ago wrote to me and asked me to talk with them. These people had the same conditions I had been writing about, but they had now formed the intersex rights movement, which was a movement for people born with these conditions to try to change the medical establishment. And the problem with the way doctors were treating this was they were treating it with lies. They would not tell patients what their real medical histories were. They would take away tissue that was actually viable because they were trying to make sure everybody fit neatly into two categories. 
And they were also um, having a system where they were doing surgeries that were quite harmful, but they were not following up on them to find out that they had, in fact, harmed people. So just to explain it a little better, one of the tools that we used when we were doing this work was a thing we jokingly called the phalometer or the phalometer. <laughs> and what it basically did is explain that when a child was born with mixed anatomy in terms of their um, genital anatomy, if they had a phallus that was under a certain length, it was acceptable as a girl, but over a certain length for a clitoris was considered unacceptable and supposedly required surgery to prevent abnormal psychological development, even though there was no evidence for that. And boys born with a penis length less than a certain amount, um, basically about an inch, were considered to have a form of uh, condition called micropenis. And they were frequently sex changed into girls, even though some of them had perfectly functional gonadal testes. So they were being changed around basically on the idea that you could only live with growing up either clearly male or clearly female, which I knew not to be true because I had documented the history of these people before surgery was available. So I knew that people in fact grew up with intersex bodies and grew up as boys and girls, men and women, and blended into society and lived without these surgeries. In some cases, the surgeries are medically necessary, but in most cases, they weren't. So I became very involved in that movement, ended up doing various books like uh, Intersex in the Age of Ethics, trying to challenge the medical establishment to do better care. We were not interested in having children raised as no gender. We argued you could raise kids as boys and girls. With, like everybody else, you take the best guess gender assignment, but then allow them to decide for themselves with their bodies as much as possible what they want to do with their bodies, not make decisions for them that might take away their fertility, take away their sensation. So then I got into the question of how other children were treated who had bodies that challenged social norms. And so that's where I became fascinated by conjoined twins. And I ended up doing a book, actually, that looked at lots of different body types where children are born with a body that challenges social norms. So that might include craniofacial anomalies, like when you have a cleft um, lip, or when somebody's born without limbs, or when somebody's born conjoined, or with dwarfism. And that was really fascinating work to me. But that all ultimately led to the book Galileo's Middle Finger. So how did I get to Galileo's Middle Finger? Well, what happened was, after I had finished helping the intersex rights movement for about 10 years, I ended up um, shifting gears, and I was interested in doing a big, meaty historical project. And the one that presented itself to me, for reasons I explain in the book, was the Bailey book controversy. Michael Bailey, a psychologist at Northwestern, had published this book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, in 2003. And it had led to an explosive controversy between Bailey and a group of transgender activists. And the reason was that in the book, Bailey put forth an idea following another researcher, Ray Blanchard, in Canada, that people who transition from male to female do so not just because of gender identity, but also because of sexual orientations. And this was a very volatile concept to approach because it was long since considered in the transgender community a better approach to talk about transgender only as an issue of gender, not as an issue of sexuality. And so when Bailey published his work, one of the things he supported was an idea called autogynephilia, which is the idea that for some people, some people who are born male, they're aroused by the idea of becoming female or being female. And they argued this is part of the reason some people transition. So three transgender activists in particular came after Bailey. They were um, Andrea James, who's a Hollywood-based um, transgender activist, uh, Deidre McCloskey, who is a very well-known, very well-respected economist and rhetorician who was at the University of Chicago, Illinois. She is ironically now at a free speech um, 
campus on university, the new University of Austin. And Lynn Conway is a computer scientist who is based at the University of Michigan. And the three of them came after Bailey with a lot of charges. These included things like that he had done human subjects research without appropriate ethics board approval, that he had practiced psychology without a license, and that he had sex with one of his research subjects, that he'd used people's stories without their permission. When I came upon this, I found this history fascinating because I knew people on both sides and I respected people on both sides. And as a historian, that's a really fascinating issue. So I thought when I went and looked at this controversy, and I ended up spending a year on it, interviewing about 100 people, looking at thousands of sources, I thought it was going to be a case of misunderstanding, right? That Bailey was sort of a clod, didn't understand why what he was saying was offensive. These people on the other side overreacted. But what I, in fact, found after a year is that the people who came after Bailey made up charges, and that they probably knew that the charges were false. So that put me in a very difficult position, because I saw what they had done to him. And what they had done to him was pretty extraordinary for the time. They had done what's now called doxing, basically making known where he lived, where he worked. They would write letters to his department where he was department chair, call him an alcoholic, and say that he should be removed. Andrea James, in particular, took pictures of his children as minors, put them up online, and put pornographic comments below them, which she said was just done in the mocking form of the book. But they were really intense. Um, and so when I saw what had happened and the way that his identity had been reformed, and I realized I was coming to publish this work, I realized they would very likely do this to me as well. So my choice was not to publish it or go ahead and publish it. And as somebody who's dedicated to the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of history, and who frankly had spent an entire year of my life working on this, I wasn't going to just throw it away. So I published this 52,000 word article in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, which became a target article. But as it was coming out, I gave it to a reporter at the New York Times, um, Ben Carey, who ended up actually writing a piece about it in advance of it coming out. And this created a whole nother level of explosion. Because of course, once it was in the New York Times, then it was out really, truly out in the public realm. And what happened was, as soon as this piece came out, they came after me. This was in 2008, when it was actually easier to um, use the Google algorithms to change what you would find when you researched somebody. And overnight, my identity completely changed from being a progressive LGBT and intersex activist to being somebody who allegedly wanted to put intersex people in the gas chambers. I was also called a tool of the Catholic Church, which my parents would have been thrilled if that was true. <laughs> but it was not actually true. Uh, they put up stuff about my parents and my sister, who are both conservative Catholics. My sister is a Roman Catholic nun. Um, I was mostly afraid that they would come after my son, but I think they had learned with Bailey that that was not a winning strategy, so that did not happen. But Andrea James showed up at my office at Northwestern and left her card in my mailbox. I was not there, saying that she was sorry she had missed me. She then sent a follow-up message saying, bad, mo bad move, mommy, I'll see you next time. I had to call campus police. I mean, it got really, really crazy. And the most disturbing thing was that the way that my public identity suddenly changed radically changed overnight. So if you Googled me, I looked nothing like I looked the week before. So really interestingly, today, because I wanted to, or rather yesterday, when I was collecting in illustrative slides for this talk, I wanted to get this picture of 
Ben Carey's article, so I Googled uh, my name, his name, Lynn Conway's name, and Bailey's name, and I discovered it's still the case that if you Google that, the first thing that comes up is Lynn Conway's University of Michigan site mocking Ben Carey, the reporter. She still, after all these years, is going after Ben Carey relentlessly, and Ben Carey's reputation was also smeared in the course of all of this. So basically, anybody who got involved ended up in that smear campaign. So my choice was to abandon this or to, again, go forward. And maybe I'm an idiot, but I kind of feel like, you know, I'd lost already all of that. I might as well go forward. So Steve Pinker, who was quoted in my article, said he really loved my article. And he said, you know, I would love to introduce you to my agent. And I said, I would rather you help me get a Guggenheim Fellowship so I can study other people to whom this has happened. So he did that. And I got a Guggenheim Fellowship, and that's the book that became Galileo's Middle Finger. And what I did was go around and interview other researchers who had been beset upon by mobs, basically. And mind you, this was before the term cancel culture, right? So what I wrote was basically the prehistory of cancel culture. But the same sorts of vicious things were occurring at that time. These intense attacks against people who were seen as saying something that was verboten, either in terms of their research or in terms of their public opinions. One of the controversies that I got into for over a year was the controversy over the book Darkness in El Dorado, which was published um, by Norton, by a self-styled journalist named Patrick Tierney. And it went after two researchers who had worked together, James Neal from the University of Michigan, who was a geneticist and a physician, who had worked with Napoleon Chagnon, who was a very well-known cultural anthropologist who had worked for many years um, with the Yanomama people in the Amazon. And among other charges made by Tierney as he brought his work forward was that Neil and Chagnon had purposely brought a dangerous measles vaccine into the jungle and purposely infected the Yanomama people to see who would live and who would die under a eugenical experiment. This was simply not true. Neil knew that measles was going to break out eventually in this population. He was carrying a safe vaccine, and he was trying to get ahead of the epidemic that ultimately broke out. There were tapes actually recorded of this. I didn't have to do that work. Other people had already done that work that I came along. But what I was interested in was how the American Anthropological Association, for two years, put together a task force that investigated this book and investigated Chagnon for ethics violations. And for two years it went on against Chagnon, in spite of the fact that everybody seemed to know that she, uh, sorry, Tierney's book was full of misrepresentations and in some cases, I think, lies. And what was pretty stunning to me was when I finally managed to get um, an internal email that someone leaked to me, Sarah Blafford Hurdy had leaked to me, to her from the head of the task force. And this is what the head of the task force said to her at the time, as the task force was sort of torturing Chagnon for two years over alleged ethics violations. Burn this message. The book is just a piece of sleaze. That's all there is to it. Some cosmetic language will be used in the task force report, but we all agree on that. But I think the AAA, which was the American Anthropological Association, had to do something because I really think that the future of work by anthropologists with indigenous peoples in Latin America with a high potential to do good was put seriously at risk by its accusations. And silence on the part of the AAA would have been interpreted as either assent or cowardice. Whether we're doing the real, right thing will have to be judged by posterity. So this was a case in which a very esteemed academic society, the American Anthropological Association, chose to go forward with the head of the task force recognizing that this book was just a piece of sleaze, 
but decided to go forward because of basically the need to prove that they cared about indigenous peoples in order to protect their own research. And when I ended up doing uh, interviews with Shagnon about this, it was clear he had basically had his career destroyed by the situation and had had part of his psyche destroyed too by being accused of having committed genocide against the people he really cared about and had researched for years. That is a really extreme example, but I think it's not an unusual example of the kinds of things that occur in academia where individual researchers are sort of set aflame as a sacrificial uh, lamb for the sake of the group. The way this happens today, though, feels far more chaotic even than it has been in the past. And we see other forms of political pressure applied too. So this is just two headlines from The Hill. University of Florida bars three professors from testifying in lawsuit over elections law. University of Florida researchers pressured to destroy COVID-19 data, told not to criticize DeSantis. This is the kind of pressures to which researchers are increasingly subject, particularly at public universities, and it's creating an environment that is making it really hard for people to do good work. I want to tell you now about the story of another researcher, just to give you a, a different um, take on the kinds of ways that these things can play out. This was an article published in 2018 in PLOS One, which is a very prestigious online journal, and it was by Lisa Littman, who was a researcher at um, Brown University's medical school. What she was interested in figuring out was why, why did there seem to be this sudden shift in terms of <clears throat> young um, females who were identifying as transgender? Why did there seem to be a sudden change on what she termed rapid onset gender dysphoria? In the past, it had been very well documented that some children very early in life do not fit the gender to which they were assigned. They seem to be the other gender. But in this case, she was interested in girls who did not seem to have any issues of gender dysphoria until fairly late in their teens, and then suddenly had what she called rapid onset. And what she did was interview parents, or did a survey with parents to try to figure out whether or not there were patterns. And one of the patterns that she found was that before these transitions, the girls who had decided to transition <coughs> expressed um, or displayed a much higher use of the internet and also a much higher uh, association with friends who were transgender identified. What Littman was interested in is the question of whether or not these influences were influencing the need to transition. And she published this as a survey, and it was first at Brown University lauded by their PR department as being, look, great, we have this very interesting paper published by one of our researchers. Brown correctly thought that anything about transgender gets lots of publicity nowadays. What they didn't realize was that this was really gonna piss off a lot of the transgender <coughs> community. Excuse me. So what, <coughs> what ended up happening, sorry, I gotta blow my nose. What ended up happening was that Brown basically pulled back the announcement and sent out an entirely different announcement that expressed <clears throat> great skepticism about Littman's work. And I would just note that if you see how many views Littman's paper has gotten, it's gotten over 446,000 views. <laughs> you may think you want that as a scholar, you don't want that number. <laughs> that number is never a good sign unless you've also won the Nobel Prize. That is a sign that your life is hell. The former head of the Harvard Medical School, Jeffrey Feiler, wrote a piece in Colette about what had happened in this case, and I thought it was worth quoting. 
Increasingly, research on politically charged topics is subject to indiscriminate attack on social media, which in turn can <clears throat> pressure school administrators to subvert established norms regarding the protection of free academic inquiry. Sorry, I was not losing my voice earlier. What's needed is a campaign to mobilize the academic community to protect our ability to conduct and, and communicate such research, whether or not the methods and conclusions provoke controversy or even outrage. <clears throat> Something which I totally agree. <laughs> and yet, this is a book that just came out <clears throat> with Oxford University Press. And before it even came out, a book called Gender Criti Critical Feminism, which is critical of certain views of transgender. Before it even came out, a campaign was launched to stop the book from being published. Sorry. <coughs> I swear I wasn't losing my voice earlier. So there was this whole campaign. Fortunately, Oxford did the right thing. And Oxford basically told the people who were petitioning, we publish stuff that's controversial. And sometimes people aren't going to like what we publish, and that's part of what we do. So they stood solid, but there have been many cases where organizations have not stood solid and have not stood up for controversial research. <clears throat> Just as an example, the Freedom Project at Wellesley College was this wonderful project organized to basically help us have conversations about difficult subjects. It was, <clears throat> according to the mission statement, devoted to the promotion. <laughs> devoted to the promotion of freedom and expression of expression, pluralism and intolerance on campus in the greater world. So what the Freedom Project did was invite people like me, who were understood to have said something controversial or done something controversial, in the hopes that students would understand how we can have conversations about difficult subjects and deal with difficult research topics. But what ended up happening when I gave a talk at um, Wellesley was that the students had gotten word in advance that I was some kind of devil incarnate and that they should not come and listen to me. Weirdly, they thought I was anti-transgender in spite of the fact that I've co-published work arguing that transgender women should be allowed to play in women's sports, arguing that transgender people should be allowed to be de the determiners of their own future, arguing that insurance should cover transgender interventions, et cetera, et cetera. They had gotten word that I was apparently terribly anti-transgender. So they refused to come to my talk, but when I came out of my talk, this is the, what I faced in terms of the opposition. And it was really strange because I kept thinking, how many of you actually know what I have had to say? So rather than having to walk this gauntlet to leave, which is what they wanted me to do, I decided to stay and have a conversation. And it was incredibly interesting. I got emails from all sorts of students afterwards saying to me that they had felt <coughs> really shocked at how brainwashed they had been in terms of being told lies about me and that in the future they would do their own research. That said, the Freedom Project was closed down. And it was closed down because the administration, as I understand it, basically got tired of dealing with the students complaining about it all the time. The editorial board for the student newspaper wrote a sort of celebratory editorial when it was closed down and what they said was that speakers like me had made students feel uncomfortable or unsafe. And that that was the reason the organization needed to basically be defunded. It was also very controversial because the, the Freedom Project had obtained funding from the Koch brothers. Something that I had directly actually addressed in my talk. 
with regard to, I actually didn't know before I gave the talk that that's where part of the funding was coming from. But that again was something I think we needed to actually address and discuss. And what was really interesting was that yes, the money was coming from that, but the money was funding, bringing people like me who are actually super far on the left. And many of the speakers in fact were. The same sort of thing unfortunately has now happened at the St. Olaf Institute for Freedom and Community where Ed Santori was the leader of that group. And it had the same sort of wonderful mission. The mission was, the Institute for Freedom and Community encourages free inquiry and meaningful debate of important political and social issues by exploring diverse ideas about politics, markets, and society. The Institute aims to challenge presuppositions, question easy answers, and foster constructive dialogue, et cetera, right? So an organization designed to bring us into difficult conversations. But quite recently, Santori was removed by the president of his college as the head of the institute for having basically brought in two controversial speakers. <clears throat> One of the speakers was me, although things were okay after I went, fortunately. But two of the other ones, the most, re the most um, proximate one was Peter Singer, who has been known for having controversial views in terms of disability rights, many of which I disagree with, but I would like to hear Singer in, in speaking in this kind of forum because in fact, in this forum, what would happen is Ed Santori would sit down with you and ask you incredibly difficult questions. It was actually a really hard-hitting, intense debate kind of an environment that was great. John McWhorter was also one of the speakers that was named as problematic. He um, does very interesting work on issues of race and has very controversial views on issues of race and racism. Again, somebody that I think is definitely worth bringing in and having a conversation with as we think about what to do with race issues and issues of racism and disparities in the future. So are we seeing a climate change in academia? I would say yes, especially if you look at, we've needed things like the Wellesley Freedom Project and the St. Olive Project, specifically because we're having such a hard time having these difficult conversations. But then these things come up and then they are basically De reorganized, let's put it that way, the nicest way we could possibly put it. So how did we get here? Well, I think it's worth understanding as a historian, I'm gonna say part of what we're suffering from is what I would call the excesses of our successes. We've had it really good. That's why we're kind of having it really bad right now. One example, the internet has allowed mass communication to happen, which has been fantastic for organizing things like the intersex rights movement, for organizing democratic movements, for helping people meet other people, for people telling their cancer stories. It's been incredible. But the downside of that is the speed with which mobs can form. Speech has had strong protections in the United States against claims of defamation. We've had really strong free speech laws. But the problem of that is it's very difficult to start, stop somebody who is telling falsehoods about you. Really, really difficult, I'll tell you. We've had empowerment of youth, which has been wonderful. Youth has been incredibly empowered in this world, in the United States. But the, perhaps the downside of that is the phenomenon of over-empowerment. And I think we have seen this on campuses where single students within classes can basically destroy entire classes. And I can tell you lots of stories about cases like that, but I don't have time to tell you about them today. But cases where, for example, I talked to one faculty member who had given up teaching the myth of Lita and the Swan because one student said she had failed to tell her that there was a rape, which is a metaphorical rape of Lita and the Swan, and therefore had harmed the student irreparably because of the failure to warn her that there was this metaphorical rape within this ancient text. I've met a lot of faculty who have basically changed and cleaned their syllabus over the, across the country because they're afraid of single students. 
We have greater protections of the vulnerable, which is wonderful. We have a situation where we have far more people keeping an eye on the vulnerable. But the problem with that is the level of surveillance. And I hear this from faculty all the time, that they feel highly surveilled within campuses. And actually, students tell me the same thing, that they feel like they are on constant watch. And that anything they say in a class could end up on the internet, on Twitter, on whatever, on TikTok. And they, their whole lives might change overnight. So it's great that we have protection of the vulnerable, but that level of surveillance makes us very hesitant to have any kind of disagreement. Then there's the problem where we've had far more social restraint. People are far more polite than they were in many cases 30 years ago. But it's also the case that that's leading to self-censorship in some cases. So I highly recommend the Heterodox Academy's Campus Expression Survey, which is super interesting to read. It tracks how students are expressing or not expressing themselves in campuses across America over the last three years. And I should disclose I'm on the advisory council of the Heterodox Academy. But I think this is absolutely fabulous work and one of the things it finds, not, perhaps not too surprisingly, is that students are getting increasingly hesitant to say what they think within classes and within other forums. And the reason is they're worried about offending. They're worried about being misunderstood. They're worried about being called out. Now, it's not true for all students in all cases. But one of the things heterodox encourages is trying to find ways to help students express themselves without this kind of fear. Because of course, we don't have the same level of learning when we're all trying to act like we all agree on absolutely everything. Then there's the issue of the diversification of faculty and staff, and also I would say students, which has been a fantastic change within universities in the last 50 years. But the problem that it leads to, of course, is cultural classes, clashes. And I would say where we're going in particular is challenges with regard to um, neurodiversity. And Jeff Miller has written about this in Quillette. I think we really haven't struggled with the question of how do we make sense of the fact that not all our brains are the same. So I know it's unpopular to say, but I actually think male brains and female brains on average are slightly different. And there are ways in which the males and females on average will process social situations that are different. We are moving in the direction within the economy of assuming that the female brain is the one that needs to be accommodated all the time. Because women are the most vulnerable in terms of assault and battery and all of the rest of it. And that makes sense. But at the same time, I think we have to have some recognition that we can't just assume that the male brain comes ready to know what should be expected of it. And Jeff, has, Jeff Miller has pointed to a, a really tragic case of um, a suicide, Will Moore, who actually left behind a heartbreaking suicide note talking about the fact that he, had, he was a high-functioning autistic person with Asperger's syndrome, that he simply could not understand the social norms of the university system. And he was constantly offending people and getting in trouble for offending people because he couldn't understand the kinds of ways that social cues were supposed to be done and supposed to be processed. I think you know, one, of the, one of the things that Miller says that's really interesting is that if you're going to have a situation where you have a university with a lot of smart people, you're going to have people who don't know how to process social cues the same ways as everybody else. Because that sometimes comes with that level of intelligence. And as a consequence, if we don't start thinking about the ways that our brains differ, I think we really can't handle the question of how we're supposed to communicate. I would like to see us certainly be sensitive to issues of not offending people and not making people feel marginalized or left out. But at the same time, I feel like we have to have a lot more understanding and a lot more forgiveness when people make supposed mistakes. OK, 
Continuing with the excesses of our, of our successes, this push to outreach, universities pushing us hard as faculty and as students to get out of the campus gates and deal with our communities has been a fantastic thing. You know, it originated with extension services, which were wonderful. And now it's been really broadened to lots of other areas as well. So my universities have always loved when I've gone out and done opinion pieces in various um, high-level magazines and newspapers. But the problem with that is the more that we go out there, the more there is this inreach. The more there is the view, for example, that if I publish something and I happen to be at a university, then somehow people read that as representing the university. And if they're angry, they're going to come after the university administration, come after the donation system, come after the endowments. That kind of pressure coming back at us has created a really dangerous environment for a lot of faculty in particular. We've had fantastic work attending to stopping sexual harassment and sexual abuse, but at the same time, I think anybody looking carefully at Title IX systems would be hard-pressed to say they're not broken in many places. And I, again, don't have time to go into my own experiences with problems within Title IX, but we can take, for example, the case of David Bucci, who um, was profiled in the New York Times after he committed suicide. He was a chair of a department where three professors were accused of sexual harassment by a group of women graduate students. The women graduate students then decided that Bucci was inadequately helpful in this circumstance, and he got caught in this crazy Title IX intense investigation, and he ultimately decided he just couldn't deal with it and ended his own life. You know, obviously we want Title IX systems to protect people against sexual harassment and sexual abuse. I mean, I live in East Lansing, Michigan, the home of Larry Nasser, right? We absolutely want circumstances where we protect people. But at the same time, the way Title IX has been set up often, has, often includes due process that is very questionable, situations where people can't know what's happening with their own investigations, and systems where stuff that sometimes really should be handled by the police is being handled by university administrators, which I think is deeply problematic. Young people have been raised in protective environments as never before, which has been a wonderful thing, but Greg Lukianoff and um, John Haidt write about this in The Coddling of the American Mind. Oops, the top of the book got cut off. Um, talking about specifically how We've ended up with a situation where many of our youth actually lack resiliency because they've been raised in environments that are so protective. And that leads to trouble within university and college systems where you have students who have legitimately not been able to learn how to develop resiliency in the face of challenge. And that in turn leads to lots of problems for them and for the people around them. So what else is endangering free speech and op open inquiry? Just to wrap up. I would argue there's the narcissism problem, which we really haven't talked about enough. The narcissism problem occurs particularly on Twitter, although it occurs in other places too. I didn't really write about this in Galileo's Middle Finger, but I could have. The reason I didn't write about it is because I didn't want people to, to decide glumly that, well, everybody who attacks me is a narcissist, right, so I don't have to pay attention to them. But the truth is that some of the people doing serial attacks really are narcissists. And they really do become problems on campuses in particular when they become sort of these vortices of ego who take over lots and lots of issues within a single campus. So this is just out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual describing what a narcissist is. And I want you to picture the most annoying person you know and ask yourself if they fit this categories and say, we don't, we don't think about narcissism enough. Exaggerated sense of self-importance sense of entitlement and requiring constant excessive admiration, expecting to be recognized as superior even without achievements that warrant it, 
believing they are superior and can only associate with equally special people, monopolizing conversations and belittling or looking down on people they perceive as inferior, expecting special favors and unquestioning compliance with their expectations. If you look at serial attackers, people who constantly come after certain people, and they, I have a few of these people in my life because I've been in enough of these circles dealing with cancellation, people who've been canceled, that I then get canceled for having paid attention to the cancellation. This is what we see, is this kind of vortex of ego. And I don't think we pay enough attention to it. I don't know how to deal with it, I must say. When you have a campus situation and you know, for example, you've got a student or a faculty member who's a narcissist who's constantly creating uh, problems because negative attention is as satisfying as positive attention, I don't know what you do with it. But I think we need to start talking about that. In addition, I think we have to talk about the job insecurity problem. Right? So if we look at tenure today, 70, over 75% of college faculty are now off the tenure track, meaning they have no access to tenure. This represents 1.3 million out of 1.8 million faculty members. This kind of rose to the surface with the issue of Cornell West leaving Harvard because they wouldn't give him tenure. Most people would have reasonably assumed Cornell West had tenure at Harvard, but he did not, and he got frustrated waiting for it. Um, hopefully my spouse won't kill me for telling you this story, but my spouse is now the dean of the medical school, College of Human Medicine at Michigan State University. And he has never been on a tenure line. He has risen up through the ranks as a clinical faculty member. He's really good at what he does. He's really good at administration, obviously. So he's risen up through the ranks. When they wanted to name him dean, the problem was that the bylaws of the university say he has to be on the tenure track. But some of the research faculty objected because he hasn't published lots and lots of papers because he's been busy running the medical school for years. He was interim dean for many, many years. So he's now on the tenure track, <laughs> but he's not tenured. <laughs> so he and I are working on a paper together so I can help him get tenure. He is a dean of a medical school at an R1 university and he's now on the tenure track. That is how few people, 80% of the faculty in his college do not have tenure, which is actually not that different from the national average. When people ask me, what can we do to protect free speech in America, you know, the thing that I say is the number one thing we could do, give people national health insurance. And the reason I say that is because the fear that you're going to lose your health insurance keeps you from speaking out on so many things. I have met so many faculty where the first thing they name when they call me and they tell me they're afraid they're going to lose their job, I say, what's your biggest fear? They say, I'm going to lose my health insurance. The way that we have this country running where people have to be dependent on their jobs for their health insurance puts them at great risk of doing anything daring in their job, including whistleblowing or objecting to power systems that are problematic. And then finally, I want to talk for a minute about the argument uh, Jaron Lanier makes in 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now. It's what I would call the dumb algorithm problem. So. Twitter and Facebook have these things called algorithms, and they're computer formulas to decide what they're going to shove in your face. And it, what they want to shove in your face is the thing that will keep you coming back. Because basically, the, what they make money off of is finding out who you are and selling your data to somebody else. We are not the customers of Facebook and Twitter. We are the cows that they are milking, right? The farmers that are, that are real customers are advertisers who want our information. And so what happens in these circumstances is that they set an algorithm that will keep you engaged. Well, unfortunately, it turns out that the thing that keeps humans most engaged on social media is stuff that makes them mad and sad and tribal and divisive. Twitter and Facebook, the leaders of it, 
They don't sit around going, let's make everybody unhappy. But what they do is they test the different algorithms and they see what keeps people coming back. And it turns out what keeps you coming back is if they shove the most nasty, unpleasant, divisive, tribal stuff in your face. And that is what's happening all the time in those social media systems. The consequence of that is you come to believe you live in a world where you have to protect yourself and protect your tribe, where you have to be in constant fear and anxious all the time. And the same sort of stuff is happening on the evening news, right? If it bleeds, it leads. They're going to tell you about the most horrible car accident. They're going to make you afraid of this or that. This is the stuff that is now causing us to function in a world where we're constantly invited to be divisive and tribal. And that does absolutely leak down into our university cultures and impacts our ability to have free thought and free inquiry and free speech. So we come back to this. That's why I want to point to the issue of we should be thinking not just about leadership, but how we follow. We really need to be thinking about how we follow. So to close my recommendations, think about how you lead and how you follow and what you like. Right? Every time you're participating in those social media systems, you're basically participating in a system that's ultimately being used against you in weird ways. This is a very strange world we've constructed. Be more suspicious than ever about sourcing. If something comes across your way and you agree with it, therefore you boost it, do you really know that it's true? Did you bother to go back and look and read the, you know how Twitter pops up the thing that says, would you like to read the article first before you boost it? You should go and read the article first and find out if it actually says what you think. More than ever, we have to be suspicious about where things are coming from in terms of our knowledge. Recognize nefarious forces like the dumb algorithm and politicians and Russian disruptors who are really real. The stuff we now know about the way that in 2020, Russian disruptors were purposely causing divisiveness within um, the, the United States is really shocking. One of the Twitter accounts that was thought to be a sort of leading activist in terms of black rights turned out to be a Russian bot, causing purposeful disruption between Black Lives Matters and people who think of themselves as pro-police and think of Black Lives Matters as being anti-police. There was actual disruption of us by Russian operators, which is really, really troubling. Seriously value diversity even when it feels unproductive. I hear all the time, we need diversity because it makes us think better, it makes us buy. I don't care. Value diversity even when it makes you miserable. Because ultimately, it's a better thing to allow more voices into the university systems, into our free speech environments, because ultimately, that, that is ultimately what will create safe systems for all of us. The fact that more people want to be part of that conversation is good for all of us. And related to that, consider per purpose, uh, personally protecting the rights of jerks. I have to do this all the time in my work, and yet I think it's really important that when a jerk says something stupid, we still have to protect their right to say something stupid. You can absolutely go to them and tell them why it is stupid and then tell them why you're going to join them in protecting their rights. You can do both of those kinds of work, right? You can talk back to somebody, but also make sure that their ability to have an unpopular opinion is allowed. Stop acting like the St. Peter at the gates of heaven. What I mean by this is we've got this strange situation now which reminds me very much of the witch trials um, of the 17th and 18th century, where when somebody says something, we immediately assume that that tells us everything we need to know about their soul, right? So somebody makes a comment about whatever it is, Palestine and Israel, or uh, the police, or whatever it is, that we somehow assume, oh, now I know who you really are. 
we need to stop assuming that just because somebody said something, we somehow know everything about them and can judge them as good or evil, with me or against me. That kind of impulse, again, I think is being fed by the way that people making money off of us would like us to behave. Start, start thinking and teaching about how people change their thinking. So one thing I hear from faculty, which I really like, is that in my classroom, I make my students understand the different points of view. So I make them think about conservative views and libertarian views and progressive views and communist views and whatever it is. And I think that's great, right? But what I'm interested in is not just that, but helping students understand how people shift from being one political party to another or shift from identifying as this to identifying as that. That is, I think, really important work we can start doing, is not just saying, as the Heterodox Academy says, we need more different types of political diversity within universities, which I agree with. I'm interested not just, can we get more conservatives into the university? I'm interested in the question, can we get conservatives into the university and then discover some progressives become libertarians and some libertarians become conservatives? That would be really interesting to me, right? Where we actually see evidence of opening of minds. And then the teach methods that value the pursuit of facts. So it's great when we teach our students you know, this tradition or that tradition or this kind of idea or that kind of idea. But I think what is more important than ever is teaching our students methodologies that allow them to understand how we pursue truth. So teaching them how they go into the world and figure out what is real. Teaching them how they understand that everything comes from a source and every source is potentially questionable. And that, I think, is where we really need to go as campuses in America and as a society as a whole. So thank you so much for listening. Do you have a mic? Oh, I do have a mic. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I'm Jess Flanagan, and I teach ethics in the Jepson School. Um, so it's great seeing you all tonight. And I'm here now uh, to do a brief Q&A, asking some pre-submitted questions. And the first one that I would ask is, how do you see free speech in higher education playing out across international borders? So this is very US-focused. Is there any kind of global context that you could give us on free speech? There's definitely a global context, and I actually just um, contributed to a volume that actually is a national volume that J.P. JP Messina is the editor for it, and I'm afraid I forget the title of it, but I think it's free speech in a global context. And it looks at different kinds of speech at different universities, or different university systems around the world. It definitely differs, and it differs in part because laws differ about speech and defamation, and so those end up having an impact. But to me, the most powerful contribution to that volume was from scholars from Hong Kong who have been experiencing the oppression, the increasing oppression of China against Hong Kong. In fact, one of the authors is bugging out now to London to protect himself and his family. But it is certainly the case that in some places it is much more oppressive. And I would say the United States continues to lead in terms of um, the ability to have free speech. The United States is really, really exceptional in terms of how much speech has been protected. And that's been hard as well as good, right? It's been very difficult as well as good. It's hard to protect that resource. 
Um, how do you think systems like tenure, but also peer review or the publication process um, hinder free inquiry? And is there an upside to having these processes relative to free inquiry? The pros and cons of not just tenure, but what it takes to get tenure as a screening process. It is, it can be really, really difficult and some fields are highly politicized. And so it can be extremely difficult in certain fields to do research that is off the beaten trail or that challenges conventional wisdom. And this is a great concern, actually. Um, I certainly experienced this myself when I was trying to publish in medical journals an alternative view of how to deal with intersex stuff and was rejected and rejected and rejected until doctors themselves started publishing exactly what I was saying, sometimes actually plagiarized from my work, but I never objected to those plagiarisms because <laughs> I, I had a political goal in mind in that case. Uh, but it, is, it certainly can be very difficult. I think the best thing that we can do with regard to peer review is try to keep it as transparent as possible while protecting the anonymity within the peer review system. I should mention, by the way, that when I was writing the book Galileo's Middle Finger, I had this notion that maybe we should found a journal called like, um, I forget what it was called, the Journal of Dangerous Ideas, and that we should have a place where people with the most dangerous ideas would be able to publish. And I remember Mike Bailey saying to me, Alice, don't you think every journal should be a journal of dangerous ideas? He was like, don't you think that's the wrong way to fix it? That the right? Well, as it turns out, there is now a journal of controversial ideas, and I'm on the editorial board, as is Mike Bailey, and we accept papers from people who feel that they can't get their papers published in their fields, and that the only way to publish it is to publish it in a place that purposely takes dangerous ideas or controversial ideas. Some of the papers are terrible. They send them to me for peer review, and they're awful. But some of them are really good and really interesting. So we do peer review there. Yeah, Rivka Weinberg had a great paper out there recently on the it's meaning a, of life. It's a fascinating journal with a lot of philosophy, actually. Yeah, Peter Singer mm -hmm. is the guy. Um, do you worry that protecting free speech uh, invites a kind of moral relativism? Or how would you respond to, in journalism, for example, Wes Lowry's view of like moral clarity in journalism, or a worry of that allowing free speech allows people to equivocate too much between just and unjust ideas? Those are a lot of different questions. <laughs> Here's where I'm going to answer. So I've wandered into journalism. I, I first went into national journalism and health journalism because when I was dealing with patient rights issues, what happened was the internet was coming much more strongly into being, and it defunded investigative journalism by accident. So the internet is great because you can get your news out there, right? But it's terrible because most people want their news for free. And when you want your news for free, you're not paying for anything. You're not paying for reporting, for editing, for photojournalism, or any of it. So I started doing national um, work, investigative health journalism. Um, and then I ended up founding a newspaper for the people of East Lansing by accident because there was a developer down the street who was building a pro I was a NIMBY, right? There was a developer down the street building a project I hated. So I started getting involved in East Lansing politics. I realized we had no newspaper. I found a newspaper and stupidly eight years later, it was, it's been very successful and I'm stuck running a newspaper by accident. Condolences. <clears throat> yes, it's, it's a weird, weird situation. But what I've, what I've learned now hanging out with journalists for the last eight years intensely is that Journalists have a parallel conversation to the conversation going on with academia about what our responsibilities are. And it is actually a really difficult question because the best journalists try to deliver the news without bringing their own feelings and their own opinions. 
That said, it can be really challenging to figure out how to do that when you know something is urgent and you know that people really need to get this particular thing because it's going to impact their lives if they don't understand it. And that is a real struggle. I wish it were the case that journalists were frankly more transparent about those struggles and talked with them uh, about them more openly. Because when they don't do that, and then people find out later that they've made decisions that the readers understandably question, it undermines the trust in journalism. So the recent um, autobiography, for example, of Nina Totenberg talking about her relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg is really, really troubling in terms of understanding the depth of their friendship while one person was reporting on the other. I find that very troubling in terms of understanding it. So just follow up on this moral clarity idea. So then I'm not familiar with the So this idea is that we have two different models for inquiry. And like one might be free speech, where you just have the marketplace of ideas um, and you just hash it out, right? But of course we know like in any market there can be market failure and that the marketplace of ideas might not get at the truth. And that allowing free speech might allow for false equivocation between justice and injustice. And so what you want is to get at the truth, it might be the case that some people are just experts about the truth and that they should shut down not the truth. And so for academics and for journalists, a, a reservation people might have about tolerating free speech might be that they will fail to communicate the truth about what justice requires. Or they, might, they might provide false equivalence or something, or that it yes. invites a kind of moral relativism. And, and this is something Margaret Sullivan at the Washington Post has been writing a lot about. She had, was previously public editor at the New York Times, but it's, it's what, then went to the Post and now is actually retired from the Post. But she's been writing a lot about this, about the duty of journalists not to try to bring a simple balance, but to really call what they're seeing for real and to make clear to people what it is they're really seeing. Mm. I think that is really important. At the same time, you have to have a very careful relationship so as not to undermine journalism. You know, the newspaper I run, we run no editorials and we take no letters from, uh, to the editor. We take nothing that looks like opinion. The only thing we ever do run in terms of columns that are editorial are the explaining of our reporting decisions mm. and the explaining of our editorial decisions. And we do that frequently. So when we have to bring the ugly story that one person running for school board plagiarized or we have to bring the ugly story that the city has not been doing fire inspections correctly and that a bunch of big buildings were built without the correct fire inspections. When we have to do that, we bring also a piece explaining why we're making everybody unhappy. <laughs> today's, today's news on why we're making you all miserable. And I have to confess to you all, after eight years of doing this at the local level, I'm not sure it's been worth it. I have made the people of my town incredibly informed and incredibly upset. They are angry all the time now. They're upset with the city manager. They're angry about the debt that we have. They're upset about tax increment financing. They know so much more than they did. They voted higher rates than they used to. They're more informed as voters. But I look at it and I think, has anything really changed? Or has I, have I just made everybody really angry? And I'm not sure it's been the right thing. It's a weird thing to say, but I'm a New Yorker who landed in the Midwest, so what did I do? I opened my big mouth, right? <laughs> and started a newspaper because I was like, all these stupid Midwestern polite people around me won't speak the <laughs> truth, right? So I will speak the truth. And I found other New Yorkers, like half my staff is New York, ex-New Yorkers. And you know, we, we are the people who bring it, but at the same time, there, there comes a point where I think you have this weird revelation that the amount of information we have in our lives now 
is making us really overwhelmed and really unhappy. And is that the right thing? I don't know. You know, I try to read about the war in Ukraine. My family on both sides is Polish. It stresses me out hugely. My, I can feel my heart racing every time I'm reading about Ukraine. I sympathize with those people, not just because of that, but because my mother grew up in World War II with bombs dropping on her head. It's incredibly difficult for me to read that stuff, and I wonder, I can't do anything about it. What is the purpose of reading all of these things I can't do anything about? And I don't know yeah. the answer to that. Wow. But this is a moral conundrum we have that people did not have historically, right? It's a really interesting thing that we have to struggle with in our lives that 100 years ago people did not really have to struggle with because we can get real-time information out of Kiev now, real-time information from all over the world, and we're glued to it a lot of the time. Well, I do see the trade-off between keeping the peace and telling the truth, but I'm glad that you are with us to tell the truth tonight. So. Um, Maybe I lied. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We'll need to have some adversarial I'm very cynical. <laughs> responses here. Thanks so much. Um, now I'd like to invite you all to join us for a reception in the lobby uh, and uh, for a book signing as well. And please join me in thanking Alice. Thank you so much. Thank you.